Have you ever met the connector? Well, he ponders, he helps, he creates, he writes, he speaks. He basically connects people and brings them together. I speak about Paul Solano of PS and All Marketing Group. At psandallmarketinggroup.com, you will receive an assembled group of Paul's contacts and connections that cross into many sectors of life. Please contact Paul Solano at 617-240-4130 or psandallmarketinggroup at gmail.com if you are in the market for a wide array of services. Again, please contact The Connecta, Paul Solano at 617-240-4130 or psandallmarketinggroup at gmail.com with any questions. And now... Here's Paul Solano, the host of Paul Ponders. Welcome to Paul Ponders. My name is Paul Solano of PS and All Marketing Group, and I may be reached via email at paul at paulponders.com. Thank you for joining me for my foray into podcasting. It is great to be collaborating with my friend and associate, Chalonzo Amos of PodPro Entertainment to bring you some fun, exciting, and informative podcasts. For many years, I've been referred to as the connector, or in greater Boston circles, as the connector. With psandallmarketinggroup.com, I've created a side gate to connect you and get things done. Please sit back and relax and listen to today's podcast. If you are driving or operating heavy machinery and just listening, and please just listen and stay focused on your task at hand. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy my ponderings. Let hashtag Paul Ponders begin. Greetings, everyone. How is everyone doing? Welcome to another episode of Paul Ponders. Hashtag Paul Ponders. That has such a nice ring to it. Techie Chalonzo in the studio. And a shout out to Techie Chalonzo, as always, for doing a great job with his Pod Pro Entertainment. Techie Chalonzo pointed out to me that this is episode number 13. Lucky 13. I cannot believe it, but it's really been working out very well. I hope you've been enjoying my podcasts. I really appreciate all the kind words, all the kind emails, and all the great ratings and subscriptions that you have been making to Paul Ponder's podcasts. It's been a great run and many more great episodes to come. This episode is no different. We have a great episode planned, and we are very fortunate to have with us Mr. Michael Clarity. Michael, welcome. Hey, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here. I have a bio that I could be reading and all, uh, but you know, I'll just touch upon the fact that you're an Emmy Award-winning video editor who has worked in the Boston television scene for over 25 years. And tonight, you're going to be talking about your novel, your great novel that you have written, and it's called Able-Bodied Murder at the Malden Bank, the first murder during bank robbery in American history. Michael, again, welcome, and thanks for being with us this evening. Thank you so much, Paul, for for pondering and, and and pondering to contact me to be on your podcast. I appreciate it. Well, absolutely. I know we've had you over at Pearl Street Station Restaurant for a book signing, a couple of book signings, actually. And I am totally in awe with what you have done 
with this book and capturing really a great piece of history in America, really. And it happened here in Malden, beautiful Malden. Tell us about the book. Tell us about this, how this all started. Uh, well, thank you so much, Paul. Growing up in Malden, the Malden Public Library is the Frank Converse Memorial Library, built as a memorial to a slain son of Elijah Converse, who became the first mayor of Malden almost two decades after Frank's brutal demise. Seeing Frank's portrait, seeing his portrait in the library in the, that was built in 1885 by his, his, his grieving parents, every day as a boy and passing it among a stack of books and just a little inkling as a, as a child to think about writing a, a book of my own surrounded by books. And many years go by, decades go by. 2012, I kind of did a deep dive on the research of, of the murder, which had never been novelized before. It's been known by a lot of Malden people, of course, because of Elijah as the mayor and then the portrait in the library, of course. Deep dive on 100 newspapers in the time period, genealogy of the Converse family, Edward Green, who was the culprit, William Shiloh, who was the barber, who becomes kind of a focal character of the book because he is an outlier in the town as an African-American born below the Mason-Dixon line before the Civil War and just notices in the small town of 3,000 people with a dirt road and horse and buggies, all the activity. It's not a lot of activity. You know, barber in between haircuts and shaves with a small population, you can kind of see things. And so he became kind of a pivotal character in the book. It is based on journalism, but you know, since you run a wonderful restaurant and bar, a couple beers and, and dialogue comes about and became more interesting to become a historical novel, a historical fiction novel, than just a pure journalism thing for me, because that's just uh, the road I took with this book. That's fabulous. Now, just to give our listeners perspective as to where in Malden um, this murder occurred, uh, what are the current day places? So Pleasant Street in Malden, which is kind of the one of the main thoroughfares in Malden, the bank itself was currently where the Faces Brewery is located. It was a much smaller building. Uh, the murder is December 15th, 1863, and that was a one-story building, the original First National Bank of Malden. Across the street from there was where the original, not the original, but where the post office of the time was, is now Hugh O'Neill's Restaurant and Pub, which are two stops on these wonderful Malden, Murder at the Malden Bank mystery pub crawls. Uh, we also have this year Perry Mason-themed pub crawls, which are one of the stops, of course, starts uh, at Pearl Street Station. That is correct, yes. The book details so many great things, and I also remember you once saying that John Wilkes Booth was associated in some some form with this period of time. There's a character in, in the novel who's a real person called the Count, who is a Shakespearean actor. He gets in without giving away too much of the of the true. It's a true story, but it is a, a fictionalized novel as well. He interjects himself into the story. He was a contemporary of John Wilkes Booth's father, as well as John Wilkes Booth and his his brother Edwin, acting in Shakespearean plays throughout the country. He's mentioned. He doesn't play a part really in the book, but there are a lot of people who are connected to that time period who have some note in this country. I know you've gone on a book signing tour all around Massachusetts, New England. There has also been a beer, which was, in fact, um, made especially as a tribute to your book. So if you want to tell us about that. Uh, the thing, like like yourself, I, I hope that I, I kind of, when you have a passion for, for something in your life, uh, which I, I see that you do in, in many asset, uh, aspects of your life, Paul, I can't kind of help myself with these ideas that I come up with. And so... I, I did think of, while I was writing the book, which is called Able-Bodied, A-B-E-L, which is based on Cain and Abel, and they were two 
the, the murderer and the victim were not blood relations, but all the newspaper reports were considered very, very close. So I thought of them as brothers. In the Civil War, all the newspapers I saw were looking ads for able-bodied men to fight. So I thought of Cain and Abel because it's the first murder of its kind. So I, I thought of able-bodied kind of has a, a beer sound to me. I always thought in the writing process, which took so long, of, of maybe asking a local brewery to make a beer in connection. And luckily, my friends and your friends too at, at Bone Up Brewery in Everett did make a beer called Chalk Outline. It's an imperial red, a hoppy, and that was uh, at your pub for a little bit. Yes, it was. So just a little marketing ploy, and, and it was just kind of a fun thing. I try to be innovative, but also do stuff that I like. And so I've been lucky with, with that and, and, and met a lot of great people along the way like Liz and Jared at Bone Up, like yourself, other people, Malden, Mayer's been terrific. Kevin Duffy, who was a big part of Malden, has been terrific, working as a strategic manager for businesses. Just the happenstance of this, you know, they, you probably know this very well yourself, a lot of, you know, luck is kind of preparation meets luck. So you need the timing. So you, you kind of do stuff and then things occur. And this is kind of what's happened in this case on a very small scale, but it's, it's been a lot of fun. Well, I think, was it Thomas Edison who said, luck is where perseverance and hard work collide? I believe uh, it was him who said that. And um, it is so, so true. But really, I always go by the five Ps, the poor planning prevents proper performance. And I, I think that you've just done an absolutely wonderful job just planning out your marketing strategy, obviously the book, your marketing strategy and everything you're, you're doing right now. And you are, in fact, hitting all the right buttons with great collaborations with other groups in the city of Malden. One of our past podcast guests was Mystic Side Opera. And I believe that you're doing something with the Mystic Side Opera company. Yeah, another fortuitous event of, of just meeting people. I'm lucky that the, the, the book has a certain resonance with, with Malden people or, or people in the area and the history. Like you said, it's just, it is a, a historical event in our nation as well as just a regional local event that has a lot of significance with the Converse family and, and our hometown of Malden. Jane Sticko and his lovely wife, wife Natalia, opera uh, singer with, with the opera, Mystic Side Opera Company, they took an interest in, in my novel. And he has a lot of, he's another guy too, like like yourself and a lot of the people I admire who I meet, just you can kind of see uh, he's very driven. And so he has a lot of big ideas and you need big ideas because, you know, you have to throw a lot of darts to hit the dartboard. You know, you, that's, you can't just, you think about baseball, two people, uh, 300, you know, Ted Williams, all these people, you got to take a lot of swings and misses, but you got to hit, you got to keep swinging to hit big. And, and I think that's, I hope that's a compliment for Jane. I, I try to do the same myself and I hope you, uh, I think the same for you. It's a Malden story. And so the real person, William Shiloh, the barber, who is his establishment was where All Seasons Table currently is located on Pleasant Street. So it's facing, it's adjacent to where the bank would be. If you're, if you're in All Seasons Table, would be the bank would be to the right, and then the post office would be across the street, kind of diagonally to the right. William Shiloh in the newspaper reports is mentioned a couple of times, very briefly. He's focused, of course, on, on the victim and on the killer and on the father with his prominence that he had even before he was mayor. But he kind of just, William Charlotte kind of spoke to me. And so when Jane was reading this, he saw a real person, but also a character that he could focus his opera on. And he's given me, he's written the first act, which I have nearby, which I read. He gave it to me a couple months ago and does really take the source material from the book of William Shiloh and his barbershop and then how the murder unfolds and how his dilemma of coming forward or not and what part he should play, uh, you know, as a black man in 1863. Uh, one line in my book, which I'm always proud of that my, my copy editor liked is that just because of the proximity of his shop, uh, his, his shop faced north, but the south was always behind him. So the Civil War is going on. 
is a lot of play. And he is a real person. I, I did fictionalize and make assumptions like I did with all, all the people in the book where I'm adding dialogue. But I kind of made a pretty strong assumption about guessing where he was, his what he had to win or lose in, in, in coming forward. So he is the focus of the play. It's going to be called, uh, the opera, I should say. It's going to be called Shiloh's Razor, which I had a chapter named Shiloh's Razor. It's a thin line he's crossing. Barbers used straight razors to shave people back then, and it was a very skilled position to be able to use that without, you know, without causing a lot of injuries to their clients. That is a great story and a great description of what is coming down the road for your great avenue of distribution, right? It's true. And, and, and actually, and Jane had labeled the initial play idea, oh, I keep saying play because I think of it as stage production, but that is an opera. So you have singers and you have, it's, it's stage production, not really my forte. And, and, and it's great that the source material that he likes it and he's, he's, he's crafting it and adding in the other elements and getting other people that, that bring different skill sets that will help make that a success. So initially it was called Able Bodied the, the Opera. And the, I thought of Giles Razor because that was the character, the chapter title I'd used at one point, which I always liked. And it had that kind of meaning that I really enjoyed about the, again, the thin razor sharp edge that the character, and the, I assume the real man, was living on uh, in this dilemma of this crime. That's great. Well, maybe one day we'll shoot for a play as well after the opera. So we got the book, we have the opera, a play down the road. Okay, I see some Tonys down there, down the road. Why not? Let's make it happen, right? Why not? It would be terrific. Gene, is, Gene mentioned that. He's, he's, he has big ideas, and so I I, I really love his enthusiasm, which I know you, you can kind of probably see it's in, it's in kind of a tough word to say after COVID, but it is infectious. He he is really driven and focused and he has a lot of ideas. And so I, and I, I'm thrilled by, by his commitment and, and, and interest in this story and, and bringing it to stage as an opera. That's great. Now, what about people, our listeners are probably wondering, is there a sequel? Is there a book number two? It's funny, you think about you know, George R. R. Martin trying to finish that, that Game of Thrones final couple books, and that's ponderous, and so what he did is amazing, of course, his success. I was pretty confident. The way I approached this book initially, Paul, is I had so much research in the beginning of it. It took ten, almost 10 years to, to finish the first book because I had two books, and the only reason I could take the first book and polish it was to kind of find a middle part, cut it, and then just put the second part of the story aside. And then just work, work, work on the first book, hire a copy editor, and work on it some more, hire hire a proofreader, and interior designer, did all that kind of legwork, cover design. I was pretty confident the second book would just kind of come together easier, but it, it's something that I've been working on. And I've made good strides this year. I, I, felt, I felt a little cocky initially. I thought I could kind of put it out relatively quickly because I did kind of have the, the team in place that I worked with before. But it's, it's also being happy with it and also processes, you know, the first book is, is a learning process, like anything. And so the second book, I think I've learned things. Some things in the second book are some of the best things I've written, I think. And, and some, it's all based again on a true story with fictional elements, which involve dialogue and some pacing. Nice. Now, are you at liberty to give a working title of the book? A couple of people have let it slip. I may have told you before. I think it'd be more fun, maybe perhaps when I get closer to reveal it in a way that may help build momentum. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I like that. to keep it I like to keep it similar. I'll say you want to keep kind of a branding. So it, it is very similar and there's is a rationale behind that. It will continue the story from where it where it ends in the first book. But while the same real life people who are again fictionalized somewhat. And I think it I think it's gonna be terrific when I when I do finish it. And I'm gonna spend some time I have some time coming up soon where I'm gonna really take a whole week vacation and just kinda 
try to work on it. The first 100 pages are pretty solid right now. It has a female protagonist this time, who's, who's one of the people who's in the first book. And it kind of focuses on her. And she is in the first book. And the other characters in the, in the first book and how their real-life stories pan out, again, with, with the dialogue and everything else fictionalized by, by me. Now, I'm going to ask you a question about what kind of mood do you have to get into? Do you have to be like in a quiet room? Are you by the ocean? Where, where do you do the bulk of your writing? I, I wish I was more regimented. And I, I kind of, when I've, when I've done a lot of research on how, how successful or, or, or even novice people approach this craft as it is, my little dog gets to be moving all the time. She was, I, I named the, since I did self-publish, I named the, the publishing company Minpin because I have this little, now she's 15. She's not in the room now. She's upstairs sleeping, but I'm kind of a, I'm at her beck and call. So I don't, I, kind of, I wish I had better blocks. There are times where I have good blocks of stuff and I wish I was more regimented and I've tried to done that, try to do that. I did great towards the end of my first book to try to, to focus on it because I knew I had the momentum and I kind of kept going. And there's certain parts and there was a little part in the second book, which was kind of hanging me up because it's based on some court stuff and some of the legalese in the 1860s is problematic. So I have to kind of update it and take things out, add things in to kind of make it move. But I had some progress in that recently, but I wish I had a better regimented thing. I think, you know, some people go to a Starbucks or they go, you know, to a pub there or they go and they, as long as they have a Wi-Fi and they, they can kind of, sometimes they like the noise of, of, of other people. Other times they want to go to a library, they want to go other places. I mean, do have an office and I, I kind of need to have more of a regiment, but it's just the way it, it works in a weird way. And sometimes when it comes, it, it's just an avalanche and it, it's great. That is really awesome, the way, way that all that plays out. It's a great explanation as to how everything comes to be. Now, I remember us chatting about the wonderful experience that you had with the Converse family when there was a private uh, gathering. And I thank you for the invitation to that. I wasn't able to make it that, that weekend. But tell me about what it was like to meet the descendants of Frank Converse and the Converse family. What was that like? It's probably one of the most, uh, I don't like the word surreal, but I mean, that, that describes it. It's kind of, only because it's, it's overused it somewhat, I think. But here I am uh, in the library, in the Mall Public Library, which uh, is where the story starts. You know, this is, I'm, I'm far from a superhero, but this is kind of my origin story for this book, is that library and that portrait of Frank Converse uh, as, as a young child. And now many years go by, I'm 50 years old now, this is you know, last year, uh, for, I was 49, I'm invited by the Converse family. So Elijah Converse, the first mayor of Malden, who, who was the founder of Boston Rubber Shoe Company, which is a, a predecessor of the Converse Sneaker Company, which is complicated. Some people, sometimes he thinks he is, that, that Elijah was a founder of Converse Sneaker Company, which is not true. But it, it, there is a little bit of truth there that he founded the Boston Rubber Shoe Company, which I know you know well. Vulcanized rubbers were relatively new in the 18, mid-18th century, like Goodyear and a lot of people. I mean, Goodyear is very prominent in that. Elijah Converse capitalized on that as an industrialist, built, built a factory in Malden, which employed so many people that he had to build an, a whole neighborhood of Edgeworth to house them. Uh, and he also was president of the Malden Bank, which is where he hired his son. Unfortunately, that led, not by Elijah's means whatsoever, but him being in the bank at the time of the murder and, and the bank robbery. If you could focus me back, to, I got a little bit of a, I got so much in my mind. Can you focus me back to the question, Paul? Well, really, just uh, well, what was it like just meeting the Converse family at, at, at the gathering and just being with them? Yes, thank you so much. So the his so Elijah was born in 1820, so his 20th anniversary of his, of his birth was on 2020, and the plan for the Converse family was to have a reunion that year, and that was postponed because of COVID. And luckily for me, because in 2022, they decided to reconvene, and they invited me. So I am standing in this library in front of Frank's portrait, and Elijah and, and his mother Mary as well are on either side of, of 
of Frank in the library, talking about my book and the murder of Frank Converse to his blood relative. So it was so many layers of an onion. Was a, you know, I had prepared a 30-minute speech, which I had never really done before. And it was a little bit warm in there. You know, it's an older building. And it was June, like late June. And it was just amazing. These people, there's dozens of converses coming from all over. Frank didn't have any of the sentence. He was 17 when he was killed. He had three siblings. He had two sisters. When Frank was 17, his sister Mary Ida was nine. His younger brother Harry was two. And then after Frank died, they had another daughter. And with the, the kind of interesting thing in the time period, Paul, too, which I may have mentioned to you, a lot of people would name their next child after their deceased child. So in this case, the daughter's name is, instead of Frank Eugene Converse, is Francis Eugenia Converse. So the descendants of, of those three siblings, some of them were at the library, and it was it's just astounding to interact that deep into a story that I spent so much time writing and, and just living in my brain. That is so cool. Now, was there a Chuck Taylor on the guest list? <laughs> there, there, there was a... Uh, uh, the Converse part of their tour, which was amazing too, their itinerary, I thought was astounding. Then with the Pine Banks, of course, which Elijah had gifted to the city. I uh, went to the Felsmere Pond, the Res, as we call it, which Olmsted had designed for his friend Elijah. And then they went to the Converse Sneaker Company, which now is headquartered next to North Station at TD Bank Garden. And they were able to design their own Converse sneakers, all-star sneakers for their, for their uh, family reunion. But it was one of the experts from the archivist from the Converse Sneaker Company was there and speak about that element of the family. So it's, it's just, it was, it was a tremendous day. It was nerve wracking. I had butterflies, but it was, it was, it was really fun. That is awesome. And also the area outside of Malden Square, the area of Malden Square, where right outside the library is called Converse Square, right? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, in my book, I kind of refer to at one point, I tried it in the book, is is a, a one scene in there uh, where I, I mentioned the morning, three different elements of the morning. So you have Elijah and his, his stately mansion in 1863. I might have been a little earlier in, in the book uh, than the, it's before the murder, so probably the summer or fall of 1863. And that's fictionalized, but servants, you know, uh, one of the things that's interesting time too for me always is that one thing that rich people had access to that most regular people didn't have was salad because he had his own greenhouse. People would have a little piece of bread, a little piece of meat, but to have salad was kind of a very affluent thing at the time because he had a greenhouse on the property. He had a pond, he had six acres, he had he had servants, butlers, and cooks, and and then it goes to the apartment of the killer, and then and then the apartment of, of the barber. So you see class, social status, race, which you have, you know, the and so it's just I kind of have the contrast between the three. Yeah, but yeah, Converse has had a big effect, and then the Converse Square was named for him. So one the character at one point thinks that, you know, Elijah could be so such an impact in the town that he'd be called Converse as well as Baldwin, because he left a stamp, he owned the real estate everywhere. That's that's absolutely amazing. Now, I believe in the past you told me that maybe your father-in-law is an author and, and you inspired him or he inspired you. How did that work out? His life story is, is based on, on the truth, but the, uh, he was uh, he, played, he played for the Celtics. He has a ring from 1968. Jewish kid grew up in Brookline. He, he's actually in the Brookline High School Hall of Fame for basketball. Northeastern as well, one year in the Celtics. And then he scouted for a long time. Did play-by-play -play with with Johnny Most for a couple of years in the early '80s. And he's hired by the Celtics. He was a scout. He drafted a lot of the Celtic players, some of which kind of have sad resonance. You have you have Len Bias. You have Reggie Reggie Lewis. He drafted D Brown. He drafted Rick Fox as well. I think those are the four draft picks. And then Patino came in and fired everybody. So you remember that? No library's not coming through the door. Robert Paris not coming through the door. Michael's not coming through the door. So he had a, he had all these stories of of his life. And basketball as a scout, a big chunk of it was being a scout for the Celtics. 
He scouted for the Cavaliers. He scouted for the Wizards. I believe the Bobcats as well. So he had a lot of those stories. And, you know, he, he saw teams in every state in, in the country. He went, saw teams everywhere, you know, Alaska even. And so he had his mem it's kind of a memoir. And so once I self-published, I kind of knew some of the ropes. So that's the only thing is I helped him with that process. He did, you know, the writing is his, it's just getting it into a book form with what I learned from that process. So that's available. That, that's called uh, uh, Rick Weitzman is, is my father-in-law. Uh, and it's uh, his book is On the Road Once Again. I always think of Louie Nelson. It's On the Road Once Again. On the Road Once Again, indeed. That's great. How, how can we get a copy of your, your book? Able body. Well, I, the 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 best place for Malden people or people who have access to Malden, the Gallery at Fifty Seven, which is our great little store in, in on Pleasant Street, which is uh, helps a lot of local artists in a variety of, of of ways that people have art from crafts and from there's some other writers there, a variety of other artists paintings, and they they're right on Pleasant Street. They're very close to to the actual a lot of the scenes in the book. So they're the Gallery at Fifty Seven in Malden. There's you can visit there and buy the book pretty much in the in the middle of, of where everything occurred on Pleasant Street. And they also have it online. Of course, on Amazon, it was in some Barnes & Nobles online, and Walmart, and some local uh, Barnes & Nobles as well. Unfortunately, some of them were closed. One of Saugus that was doing well for me, and that closed, and Prudential Center one closed as well. But I, I think I'm in the Peabody one now, Cape Cod, Barnes & Noble, and one other one, which I can't recall at the moment because I haven't looked for a while. Wow. That, well, that's good. And it's available on Amazon. I think you said Amazon, right? Amazon, and I do a lot of these book signings. And luckily, the key thing now for me, which I like to do, is these pub crawls. People are interacting in the story, in the history of, of, of the event. And then at the end, I'm kind of the exit through the gift shop at Hugh O'Neill's, which is the end of the pub crawl. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. So I guess that uh, our listeners could check the Malden Chamber of Commerce website um, for the pub crawl listings, the City of Malden website. And also your your website. I'm sure you have a posting on your website. And your website is? Is my name, michaelclarity.com. And how do you spell clarity? It's C-L-O-H-E-R-T-Y, michaelnormalspelling.com. Uh, also, the, the Malden Gaming District has, has links to both the pub crawl that's uh, connected to my novel and, and, and the true story, and, and also the Perry Mason novels, which are side by side this year. Every other Saturday in the summer, there's one or the other. And I'll give a shout out to Earl Stanley Gardner, the author yes. of the Perry Mason novel. And, you know, Perry Mason uh, was just a popular TV show in the 60s and 70s. As I think I have pointed out in past postings, there are some Malden connections with the characters, Perry Mason novel, the Perry Mason show. So it's uh, pretty fascinating. He lived in Malden until he was 15, uh, and then he moved to L.A., was a lawyer. He's very similar to the character that he, he wrote, for, for my knowledge of it. Uh, he uh, represented a lot of people in, in, in Los Angeles, you know, in the 30s and I guess be the 20s and 30s of people who, who kind of didn't have a lot of representation, turned that into a, a fictional form. Of course, it was an HBO show for a couple of years now, too. I think it was canceled. It was going to be a third season, but it was canceled. So it, it is kind of an, an zeitgeist of, of America. Everyone knows Perry Mason. People use Perry Mason as just an example of a lawyer when they're talking about, about law. You're right. Yeah, they they often do that between F. Lee Bailey and Perry Mason. You know those those two names are really um, really mentioned. I was going to ask you a question about your daytime job. Okay, your daytime job is, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, is with a major Boston television station. But if you just want to tell our listeners 
what you have done and, and how you won an Emmy. So I've been in TV news 28 years now. I put 25 in the book because it was a nice term and, I, and the book's been out a couple of years, but 28 years. And so I started off in, in TV editing, do a lot of live shots as well, treating live shots from, from various places locally and otherwise. And just, you know, every little, it started off in TV. It, it did a lot of different elements of, of, of the TV studio, but it's just the, the Emmy itself, I was lucky because, again, fortuitous, like you said, maybe preparation. I could quote you directly quoting someone else, but it's just the right place and the right time and, and the effort. And a lot of people, I've worked with a lot of a lot of talented people over the years, of course, and many people have, have been awarded many Emmys and variety of awards. The story I worked on with, with someone was about Boston firefighters and just the high cancer rate they had from the way that the way material is, is made now, manufactured tables, couches, furniture is much more cancer causing than it was in the past. So the, a lot of firefighters they had to clean their, their equipment and their, and, their, and their gear. And so they, they kind of covered in a half hour special one firefighter, but a lot of other firefighters in particular and how, how they dealt with that and, and trying to make some changes locally and nationally. So I, I added a part of that. So I, just, I was a part of a, of, a, of a larger team and I was very honored to be part of it and, and be awarded an Emmy. A very important story, absolutely. Now you've probably edited shots about foot chases, murder scenes and all, but what about the correlation between the Boston Strangler and Malden and where he was, in fact, picked up? Now we had talked about that, about Pearl Street Station on Summer Street. Yeah, and a lot of that, 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 that I had a kind of a, I, had, I, I did speak about that, and I did write a blog about that. It's on my website. With the new Boston Strangler movie that came out in April, which stars Karen Eileen, filmed in Malden, and, and Pearl Street was kind of the catering hub for that. They filmed other, other locations throughout Boston as well, and they took a different kind of tact on the story. But I thought with the, with the promotion of that new movie to finally kind of, at the time, reveal the connection between Edward Green and Edward DeSalvo. And again, I, 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 when I wrote my blog about DeSalvo, I'm far from a DeSalvo expert. Uh, I'm more interested in crimes in the 1860s than I am in the 1960s, and they're much more. It's much more complicated as one murder compared to a, a series of, of violent crimes, which have a lot of people speculation and different theories, and there's different evidence. And so I, I'm not delving into that in any way, shape, or form. But the connection is that Albert DeSalvo, I had no idea at the time, being a Malden resident my whole life, but where I was living uh, off of Florence Street, I didn't know that in 1964 was where De Albert DeSalvo lived. It was arrested. Being the green man, a series of rapes in four states, four New England states. Again, I'm far from a DeSalvo expert. I did enough to write the blog, and I did kind of get deep into it. But I didn't know he, and Everett, again, I don't want to give up too much of my book, but it, the, the, the two arrests happened pretty much right in front of your door of Pro Street Station, 100 years apart. Unbelievable. It's, it's so ironic. And then and here we are connected with with the book and and having you over there and little did i know about this coincidence if you as one of my daughters would call it a quinky dink but anyways but it's just uh, really, really something that you know we're in the same spot where where both men were in fact uh, apprehended apprehended i guess would be the the best word without giving away any any specifics of any books or blogs but uh, fascinating. I just found found that. But I, I yeah. And what I, what I like to do because I'm just delving into the history of, of, of the 1860s and that you know uh, being born in 1972, I don't I wasn't aware fully with how you know Malden had changed quite a bit. The new city hall, which I think was built in 70 or 71, and then just that whole neighborhood where the Savile lived. Uh, he lived at 11 Florence Park, which would, would have been right directly across the street from where I was living when I started writing the novel. And just the proximity. What I, one thing I liked in my blog, which I'm happy with, now there's an apartment building there. 
of course, there was a neighborhood there when the Sabo was there. When I lived there, it was a parking lot in front of kind of elderly housing. And I used to traverse through that parking lot underneath City Hall, the old City Hall, to get into Pleasant Street. So I, when I was writing a blog, I thought about the Salvo and his crimes and how, you know, if he definitely committed one with DNA connected, if he committed others, I thought of the yellow lines in the parking lot rising up to be police tape. I kind of visualized that. So I put that in the blog. So that was kind of a fun thing to come up with for me. It's ironic that where we're talking, that area where we're talking, which is an extension of Clement Street, is where the Heritage apartments are. So there's a heritage there, I guess. About yes, the- and I was living in Clement Street at the time, so I was directly across the street. Exactly, exactly. Wow, well, this sound podcast has flown by. I cannot believe we're almost 40 minutes in, but this is all great stuff. And Michael, I want to thank you for being with us for this podcast. Really, this has been a great episode. Do you want to give a shout out to the book again and, and where where our listeners can get a copy? Yes. The, so the book is Able-Bodied, A-B-E-L, Murder at the Bolton Bank. It's the first murder in Mecca American history. And the thing I always say too, is it's it's kind of lost in Wikipedia. When you look at bank robberies, a lot of famous bank robberies in 1934, you have Bonnie and Clyde, you had John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, and then you go back to Jesse James, a little asterisk kind of there, like a Roger, Merrick, Roger Maris asterisk for Edward Green because it happened during wartime. So he's kind of forgotten, but it happened about two years before Jesse James and his brother may or may not have been with the James Younger gang and what is considered the first bank robbery, armed bank robbery, where someone's killed. The book is available on Amazon. My website is michaelclarty.com, C-L-O-H-E-R-T-Y. Follow me on Instagram, follow me on Facebook, and it's just a fun ride, and I'm I'm happy that I'm able to complete my novel and interact with people like yourself and other people, and I just really enjoy talking about the history and bring more attention to Malden as well, which is great for the pub crawls. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Well, now I think it's time to sign off for you to go walk your dog Guinness, maybe come up with another chapter or two, uh, you know, for book number two and finish that off. So I want to thank you again, Michael, for being with us this evening for this podcast. Oh, an absolute pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much. Hope to see you soon. Michael, thanks again. That's another episode. Episode number 13. Can you believe it? And many more to come. Again, Techie Talonzo, great job in the control booth. Thank you. Thank you so much, PodPro Entertainment. Thank you for rating, subscribing, reviewing, checking out Paul Ponders. Also available through the psnallmarketinggroup.com website. So until we meet again, my friends, thanks for being with us. Hashtag Indeed. I trust that you have enjoyed Hashtag Paul Ponders. Again, my name is Paul Solano of PS and All Marketing Group, and I may be reached via email at paul at paulponders.com to do some more pondering. Many thanks to my longtime collaborative friend and associate, Alonzo Amos of PodPro Entertainment, in bringing you our fun, exciting, and informative podcast. You rock, Techie Chalonzo. With PNS and All Marketing Group, I created a side gig to connect you and get things done. Please do not hesitate to reach out to me at paul at paulponders.com with any questions. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at Paul Ponders. Follow us on Twitter at Paul Ponders Pod. Follow us on Instagram at Paul Ponders Podcast. Thank you again for listening to Hashtag Paul Ponders, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our website, paulponders.com, or wherever you stream your podcasts. 
subscribe, stream, rate, and review our shows. Your ratings and reviews help our show reach new audiences. Produced by PodPro Entertainment. Hashtag Paul Ponders lives within a network of podcasts located at podproentertainment.com. Hashtag the new radio. Until we meet again, my friend, stay well. Hashtag indeed.